Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Old South. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, King Cotton. Before I continue, I want to read you a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, a French visitor who came to the United States in the 1830s. He said, quote, On the north bank of the Ohio, everything is activity, industry, labor is honored, there are no slaves. Pass to the south bank, and the scene changes so suddenly that you think yourself transported to the other side of the world. The enterprising spirit is gone. Their work is not only painful, but it is shameful. And you degrade yourself in submitting yourself to it. To ride, to hunt, to smoke like a Turk in the sunshine is the great destiny of white men. To do any type of manual labor is to act like a slave. End quote. So as you can see, to a foreign visitor, North and South appear to be very different societies. As we described in our Market Revolution lecture, prior to 1793, the Southern economy was weak. Depressed prices, unmarketable products, overcropped lands, and an unprofitable slave system reigned. And some leaders, such as Thomas Jefferson, who freed 10% of his slaves, spoke about freeing slaves in Virginia, and maybe slavery would gradually die out. But Eli Whitney's cotton gin changed all of this in 1793. Cotton production was now profitable, and 50 times more effective than picking cotton by hand. Tobacco, rice, and sugar eventually were eclipsed in production. Most significantly, slavery was reinvigorated. The cotton kingdom developed into a huge agricultural market. Western expansion into the lower Gulf states resulted in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama became cotton-producing states. Slaves, as a result, were brought to these new regions to cultivate cotton and to break up the land. Trade in the South was dominated by cotton exports to England, and money from the sale of cotton was used to buy northern goods. Great Britain was heavily dependent on cotton to feed its textile factories, and 80% of that came from the American South. For a time, prosperity of both North and South rested on slave labor, and cotton accounted for 50% of all American exports after 1840, and the South alone produced 75% of the world's cotton. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Three Souths. As a general rule, the further north, the cooler the climate gets, the fewer slaves there are, and the lower the commitment to perpetuating bondage. The further south, the warmer the climate, the more slaves, and the higher commitment to perpetual bondage. Mountain whites along the Appalachian Mountains would mostly side with the Union during the Civil War, and you'll see a correlation in this in Western Virginia, Eastern Tennessee, northeastern Kentucky, western South Carolina, and northern Georgia and Alabama. The southward flow of slaves would continue from 1790 to 1860, and it is not a unified South, except on a unity resulting from outside interference, specifically northern abolitionists and the federal government. By 1860, only one quarter of white Southerners owned slaves or belonged to slave-owning families. But over two-thirds of slave owners owned less than 10 slaves each, 
and small slave owners made up the majority of the masters. Let's see how this breaks down in each of the three regions. Please advance to the next slide entitled the Border South. The Border South is made up of the states of Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. Plantations were scarcer. Cotton cultivation was almost non-existent. Tobacco and grain production were the dominant slave crop. Here, Unionists would overcome disunionists during the Civil War. In 1850, slaves made up only 17% of the population, with an average of five slaves per slaveholder. 21% of Border South's African Americans were free, and 46% of all of the South's free blacks resided there. 22% of Border South white families owned slaves. Taken together, this means that the ultra-wealthy represented only 1% of the Border South society. And the Border South also had a more diverse economy, as it produced 50% of the South's industrial products. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Middle South. The Middle South is made up of the states of Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. Each state had one section resembling more of the border south and another resembling the lower south. There was some industrial production, like the Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond, Virginia. While Unionists were initially successful at preventing secession after Lincoln's election, disunionists ultimately prevailed after the war began. There were many plantations in eastern Virginia and western Tennessee. In 1850, Slaves made up 30% of the population, with an average of 8 slaves per slaveholder. 36% of white families owned slaves, and 32% of all southern slave owners who owned more than 20 slaves resided in Virginia, which means the ultra-wealthy made up 14% of the total population. The interstate slave trade was dominant in the Middle South. From 1810 to 1820 alone, 137,000 slaves were forced to move from the Chesapeake to Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. From 1820 to 1860, 2 million African Americans were sold to satisfy the need of the great cotton kingdom growing in the Southeast. This was huge business. 100 men in Charleston, South Carolina, were employed as full-time slave trainers, with ads in newspapers every day. They built huge jails to house human beings. And in one week, one slave trader made $120,000 in slave sales. I'm going to give you an example of Hector Davis. Davis owned a two-story slave auction jail two blocks from the Richmond Capitol building. In 1860, he bought a 14-year-old teenager, Wallace Turnage, from Snow Hill, North Carolina, for about $900. Turnage worked for six months in the jail, till he was sold for $1,000 to an Alabama cotton planter. And less than 72 hours later, he was working on a huge cotton plantation in Pickensville, Alabama. About a year later, he was sold again for $2,000 in Mobile, Alabama. So this illustrates the interstate slave trade, the inhumanity of slavery, and the immense profitability of the system. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Lower South. 
The Lower South is made up of the states of Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Most slaves were concentrated in the Black Belt of the Deep South, along the river valleys. Plantations were prevalent. Cotton was king. In this region grew 95% of Dixie's cotton and almost all of its sugar, rice, and indigo. Disunionists, or secessionists, would prevail after Lincoln's election. In 1850, slaves made up 47% of the population, with an average of 12 slaves per slaveholder. Less than 2% of blacks were free, with only 15% of the South's free blacks living in the region. 43% of all white families owned slaves, and the number of families who owned more than 20 slaves amounted for 62% of all of the South which means that for this region, the ultra-wealthy made up 85% of the population. This region also produced less than 20% of the South's industrial products, and there is a direct connection between wealth inequality and the likelihood of secession. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Social Stratification. The South, in particular the Deep South, was a planter aristocracy, the ruling class oligarchy. In 1850, only 1,733 families owned more than 100 slaves, yet they came to dominate Southern politics. They believed it was their birthright to rule over the poor yeoman farmers, poor whites, and enslaved people. Many resented the expansion of democracy and only begrudgingly allowed yeomen to participate in politics. Some sought to perpetuate medieval feudalism that had died out in Europe. And this economic system stifled democracy. It widened the gap between rich and poor, and it hampered public education as planters sent their kids to private schools. Now, around the time of the Revolution, there were concepts of chivalry and honor that had to be protected. If someone insulted you, you had to challenge them to a duel, or else you were viewed as feminine. By the antebellum era, Southern honor existed in the South. Southerners were all about surface appearances. They were jealously guarding their public reputations, and the slightest offenses required an immediate, overblown, violent response either in the form of a public caning of a social inferior or challenging someone of your class to a duel, and this was called the Code Duello. An extreme example of this can be found in 1843 Louisiana. The editor of the Baton Rouge Gazette published an article mocking the courage of the newly elected Democrat Alcee Labranche. Labranche confronted the editor in public and struck him in the face with his cane, which resulted in a dual challenge. Labranche chose double-barrel shotguns at 40 paces. Both men leveled their guns, shot, and missed. So, all right, Southern honor has been upheld at this point. You could quit while you're ahead. Nope, they choose to reload and go again. They turn, fire, and again miss. All right, so now Southern honor has been super upheld. But no, they go again. Go three paces, turn, fire, and this time, LeBronch killed the newspaper editor. And he went on to serve out his term and was duly re-elected. Why does this exist in the South and not necessarily in the North? The violence of slavery. Despite these violent tempers, 
Southern aristocrats viewed themselves as hospitable, soft-spoken, courteous, yet high-strung. But remember, 75% of white Southerners owned no slaves at all. In the South, you had a very large population of poor whites. These were unskilled laborers or tenant farmers. Their lives were one of persistent poverty, of limited economic opportunities, and frequent relocation. By the 1850s, some South Carolinian pro-slavery advocates said that poor whites should be enslaved. The poorest of these were known as white trash, hillbillies, crackers, or clay eaters. And again, I don't subscribe to those terms, that's just the terminology of the age. These poor whites suffered from malnutrition and parasites, especially hookworm. Yet, they fiercely defended the slave system, as it gave them the concept of whiteness and white superiority, which they jealously clung to despite their impoverished existence. Poor whites took comfort in the fact that they believed they were equal to their wealthy neighbors. Social status was determined by how many slaves one owned, and poor southern whites one day hoped to own slaves and realize their own version of the American dream. Slavery proved effective in controlling African Americans, and ending slavery might result in the mixing of the races in this greatly angered poor whites. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Upcountry Farmers. In the South, you also had a great deal of yeomen. A person who owned their own farm, worked the land with their families, and enjoyed a modest prosperity. They were located predominantly in the backcountry and in the mountain valleys. They were mostly subsistence farmers and did not participate in the market economy. They raised corn and hogs. These families lived in western Virginia, east Tennessee, western North Carolina, and northwestern Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas. These independent small farmers lived hundreds of miles from the Cotton Kingdom. They hated the wealthy planters and slaves. As I said before, they engaged in a type of semi-subsistence agriculture, which meant that they consumed most of what they produced, but they might also grow a little cotton, tobacco, wheat, or corn for the market, but they were not dependent on it. This essentially is a household economy. Trade networks develop at the local level with a barter quality to it. There's not much currency in circulation, so you barter your goods for other people's goods. During the Civil War, many of these yeomen will become Unionists, and they are significant in crippling the Confederacy as over one million Southerners will serve in blue during the Civil War. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Southern Slavery. Southerners called the institution of slavery the peculiar institution, and they admitted that it was the cornerstone of Southern economies, politics, and society itself. If you go to the next slide, you will see the speech of the Confederacy's Vice President Alexander Stevens, where he admits that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. This is because the economic structure of the South was monopolistic, dominated by wealthy plantation owners. And the South is a slave society by 1830, joining Rome, Greece, Brazil, and the Caribbean in world history. Plantation systems were risky. 
It required heavy investment of capital, and hence there was a lot of debt to Northern and British bankers. Owners resisted all attempts to regulate slavery and make it more benevolent, because they believed this violated the idea of mastery. No one can tell you what to do. In the South, they developed a cash crop economy, the selling of one lucrative type of agricultural product, and this discouraged a diversification of agriculture and manufacturing. Southerners were resentful that the North made huge profits at their expense, so they believed. And they complained that Northern middlemen, bankers, agents, and shippers were responsible for their debt. We have to also understand that slaves built the infrastructure in the public buildings in the South. Roads, canals, courthouses, state houses, all were built with enslaved labor. Literally, when going back through the South, the buildings are a testament to the labor of black men and women, not whites. Due to this labor system, large-scale European immigration was repelled, and only 4.4% of the foreign-born population lived in the South by 1860. Slave labor was far cheaper, fertile land was very expensive, and Europeans were by and large unfamiliar with cotton production. In all told, this means that the South is going to be a more homogeneous region that described itself as white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Please advance to the next side, entitled The Enslaved. By 1860, nearly 4 million slaves lived in the United States. The number had quadrupled since 1800. Legal imports of slaves ended in 1808, and countless slaves had been smuggled in despite the death penalty for enslavers. Thus, the population increase was due to natural reproduction. Owners still often rewarded slave women for having many children. White slave owners often fathered sizable mixed-race populations, which they sometimes kept in bondage and other times freed. Slaves were seen as valuable assets and a primary source of wealth. The slave auction is one of the most revolting aspects of slavery. At these auctions, African Americans had to show how strong they were, how high they could jump, that they could dance to show their spryness or rhythm, their teeth were checked, and their bodies were poked and prodded much in the same way a horse would before sale. Families were often separated, and when people died, the division of property led to the splitting up of slaves among your sons. The separation of families is arguably slavery's greatest psychological horror, and the first thing that slaves will do at the end of the Civil War is search the country for their lost families. Regaining their families will be a great victory for them during Reconstruction. Another untold story of this is how slave owners who went into bankruptcy had their slaves seized and sold to companies like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and the Canal Bank of Louisiana. And it is estimated that between 1831 and 1865, these banks accepted 13,000 slaves as collateral and ended up owning about 1,250 slaves. These institutions exist to this day and refuse to pay reparations. In addition, insurance companies like New York Life and Aetna sold insurance policies on slaves, both of which exist to this day. Nearly a hundred insurance companies and banks were linked to the slave trade and the profits they have to this day were built on the backs of human misery. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the long arm of human history. Slaves suffered violent punishment, 
and were often exceedingly brutal to send a message to other slaves not to defy a master's authority. Hands or feet were chopped off, and hamstrings would be cut so you could not run away. You would be slowly tortured, whipped, and branded as punishment. Life in the new emerging western areas were particularly harsh, especially in frontier Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Alabama. Slaves were deprived of dignity and the sense of responsibility that free people have. They suffered cruel physical and psychological treatment, and were ultimately convinced that they were inferior and deserved their lot in life. But they continued to resist. They were denied education, since it was seen as dangerous to give slaves ideas about freedom. Slave quarters were squalid, cold in the winter, hot in the summer, with little ventilation, and they became breeding grounds for diseases. In childhood, mortality was nearly 66%. Some historians have tried to paint the image that white plantation mistresses were nice to female slaves, but this is an illusion. White mistresses could be just as cruel, if not crueler, to slaves, particularly if that woman had been raped by the plantation master, because that is who would be blamed, the woman rather than the rapist. African Americans were not passive victims. They resisted slavery in many forms, and culture is a primary one. African Americans were able to maintain some form of an identity and sanity by holding onto their cultural traditions and resisting their masters whenever possible. They tried to maintain a strong family structure. They tried to foster a distinctive religion which combined African and Christian traditions. They had a distinctive linguistic style. They created their own unique forms of music using traditional African banjos and bago drums. The ringshaw dance contributed to the development of jazz. Southern food of okra, barbecue, gumbo, rice, and even brewing, Jack Daniels got his recipe from slaves, all stems from African traditions. Methods of resistance were varied. You could break tools. You could sling spirituals to slow down the pace of work. You could fake sickness. You could steal food. Some of these contributed to stereotypes among whites believing that Africans were either lazy or stupid or natural thieves, but this was just resistance to a horrible institution. African Americans also had long-ranging support networks where they shared information. African Americans had informal communication networks that could speed the travel of information from one plantation to the next. And for instance, slaves spread the news of Lincoln's election and prepared themselves for the possibility of freedom in 1860 when they heard the Union Army could be coming. They would also use their knowledge of the countryside and of the plantations to find their way to freedom. This brings us to another form of resistance, running away along the Underground Railroad. It is very famous, but is not just one route, and it was not really a railroad. We don't have a firm number on the slaves who escaped, but some historians believe that from 1800 to 1850, about 100,000 slaves escaped with about 5,000 per year. Historians have a bit more certainty that from the period of 1840 to 1860, it is believed that 30,000 people escaped to the north. The last method of resistance was the open revolt, with about 250 total documented slave revolts. Please turn to the next slide entitled, Freedom Fighters.
Now, I've covered most of these in class, but just to go over again. The Stono Rebellion occurred in 1739, where South Carolina slaves fled towards Florida, killing whites along the way, and while some made it, there were great reprisals afterwards, which led to the entrenchment of slavery there. In 1800, a slave blacksmith called Gabriel Prosser recruited 150 men for a planned slave revolt, but the rebellion never materialized, and Prosser and 26 others were hanged. In 1822, Denmark Vassy, a mixed-race Charleston slave, devised a large plot, but a slave informer advised his master, and Vesey and 30 others were publicly hanged. Nat Turner's 1831 revolt was the largest of all these revolts. Sixty white Virginians were slaughtered, and a wave of killing slowed down the revolt's aim of capturing an armory. Over 100 slaves were killed in response, and Turner was hanged. And the significance is that it produced a wave of anxiety among white southern plantation owners, which resulted in harsh laws clamping down further on enslaved peoples. And it is no coincidence that at that same year, the nullification crisis happened in reaction to this. One freedom fight I did not cover was the Amistad in 1839, where a group of enslaved Africans from the Mende tribe rebelled aboard the slave ship La Amistad. They killed the captain and some crew, but left two members alive so they could guide them back to Africa. Instead, the crew maneuvered them to Long Island, where they were discovered by a U.S. ship. As a result, there was a famous court case where the Mende could have been hanged for mutiny, but it was proven that they had been illegally enslaved. They won their freedom and were returned to their country, and it was John Quincy Adams who helped argue that case. As a result of all of this resistance, Southern white paranoia rises. They are infuriated by abolitionist propaganda in the North as they saw this inflaming their slaves. And they will begin to settle into a theory of biological racial supremacy as a justification for slavery. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Free Blacks. By 1860, there were 250,000 freed African Americans living in the South. In the border South, emancipation from revolutionary days had increased, while in the lower South, many free blacks were mulattoes, meaning they had a white father and a black mother. Some had managed to purchase their freedom with earnings from labor after hours, and some even owned property, as in New Orleans, which had a sizable prosperous black community. A few even owned other slaves, though this was rare. I want to tell you the story of Peter Calder to show you the potential of free blacks and the plight they faced. Calder was born in South Carolina and served in the War of 1812 at 17 years old. He defended the national capital against the British invasion with the 3rd U.S. Rifles and distinguished himself in combat. He remained in the army and became an elite rifleman and scout. He then moved to Fort Smith, Arkansas, where he served for around 10 years. He married and raised seven children and was famous for his bear hounds. He lived a relatively good life until the Arkansas legislature passed a law removing free blacks from the state. He and his family were forced to leave everything they had built behind, and we then lose track of him in the records. But we do know that his son David served in the 12th Missouri State Cavalry for the Union during the Civil War. 
So Peter Calder is an example of free blacks on the frontier earning respect and recognition until the racist legislature wanted to end such examples of black success. This story also illustrates the discrimination in the South towards free blacks. Many free blacks were prohibited from certain occupation. They were not allowed to testify against whites in court. There was always a danger they could be re-enslaved and forced back into slavery by slave traders. And they became a powerful symbol of what might be achieved by emancipation, as well as illustrating the sham of white supremacy. What could be more telling to a poor white than a free black who was doing better than them? So as I stated earlier, many states, like the Arkansas General Assembly in 1843, passed a law prohibiting free blacks from entering the state. By the 1850s, the free black population had begun to decrease, and by 1859, another piece of legislation was passed which banned manumission and the residence of free blacks in the state. This was called Act 151, and it threatened any free blacks within the state by the year's end to be subjected to one year of slavery in order to pay for their eventual removal. By 1860, the free black population had fallen from 650 people to 144 people. Free blacks were also discriminated in the North. They numbered about 250,000 people there. Some states forbade their entrance or denied them public education. Most states denied them suffrage. Some states segregated blacks into public facilities. And they were especially hated by Irish immigrants whom they competed with for jobs. Much of Northern sentiment against the spread of slavery into the territories was due to intense racial prejudice, not humanitarianism. And the anti-black feeling frequently was stronger in the North than in even some parts of the South. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Southern Response. In the 1820s, there had been many anti-slavery societies in the South. But after the 1830s, white Southern abolitionism was silenced. Why did this happen? One reason is Nat Turner's revolt, which also coincided with Garrison's publication of The Liberator. The South sensed a Northern conspiracy and called Garrison a terrorist. Georgia itself offered $5,000 for his arrest. That same year, the nullification crisis broke out, and it gave Southerners haunting fears of Northern federally supported abolitionist radicals inciting wholesale murder in the South. Jailings, whippings, and lynchings of anti-slavery whites emerged in the South. And increasingly, abolitionist literature flooded Southern males. As a result, censorship was enacted, and abolitionist literature was banned in the Southern males. The federal government ordered Southern postmasters to destroy abolitionist materials and to arrest federal postmasters who did not comply. This coincided with the gag resolution in 1836, which Southerners drove through Congress. All anti-slavery appeals in Congress were to be ended without debate. Anti-slavery petitions would be prohibited, and many Northerners saw this as a threat to the First Amendment. The former president, John Quincy Adams, successfully waged an eight-year fight against it and got it repealed in 1844. Pro-slavery whites responded by a massive propaganda campaign to defend the institution. Prior to the 1840s, Southerners admitted that slavery was morally problematic, 
but that they had inherited as an institution and did not know what to do with it. Thomas Jefferson once famously said it was like holding a wolf by the ears. You didn't want to hold on, but you feared what would happen when you let go. End quote. Southern thinkers went from saying that slavery was immoral to saying that it, in fact, was moral. They said slavery was supported in the Bible, in Genesis, and they pointed to the fact that Aristotle said slavery existed in ancient Greece. In addition, these thinkers said that slavery was good for, quote, barbarous Africans, end quote, who were to be civilized and Christianized, and they purported the slave-master relationship to be that of a family. George Fitzhugh is one of the most famous of these pro-slavery apologists, and you have to do a reading on him. He says that capitalism is bad, but slavery is good, and he contrasted the happiness of slaves with that of the overworked northern wage slaves, or factory workers. He said the fresh air in the South was better to stuffy factories. He said blacks were fully employed and did not suffer unemployment like in the North. He said slaves were cared for in sickness and in old age, unlike northern workers who were fired when they got hurt. So this is a whole fa ideology, trying to say that a sinful institution is in fact morally right. This ideology coincided with the lead-up to the Civil War, when in the 1850s, Southerners were convinced of a black Republican conspiracy. They believed that there was a secret conspiracy to destroy slavery in the South, to make Southerners themselves slaves, and to have them forcibly intermixed with African Americans. This is an outright conspiracy. It is not true, but many white Americans convinced themselves of a fiendish big government ready to destroy their society. It infuriated and radicalized many, and made them more willing one day to kill each other in a great civil war. The lesson, people, is that dividing one another, dehumanizing the other side, and radicalizing another into a frenzy is very, very dangerous, and it is happening again. Please advance to the next slide entitled Summary. The institution of slavery was a moral sin. We can argue a lot in history, but on this point, I shall not budge, and neither should you. We have seen how slavery retarded the economic diversity of the South and created a great deal of wealth inequality whereby a few rich dominated Southern politics. We saw most Southern whites were not slave owners, but they did benefit somewhat from the system. They received the concept of whiteness to make them think they were better than blacks when in fact they were not. Slave lives were horrible, they lived in squalid conditions, they suffered from hard work, rape, and the division of their families. But they resisted with their own culture, religion, fooled whites, ran away, and fought for their freedom. The free black population grew in the antebellum period, illustrating that slavery was ridiculous. They were productive members of society, and their success proved the falsehood of white supremacy. For this offense, they were seen as a symbolic threat, and free blacks were outlawed in many states, including Arkansas. And it is interesting to note that Southerners were convinced that once free, blacks would kill them. But this never happened. Whites will always fear black retribution, which never comes. Perhaps 
they should focus more on their own violent tendencies instead of reading that onto other communities. Because as we will see, African Americans before and after the Civil War just want to live in peace, yet whites continue to keep their boot on their collective necks. Well, that is all I have for you today. I hope you are all being safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.